Well, welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. I hope you're well. I hope you've been doing all right. This is your host, William Porteous. A uh, very keen tone there for you. It's very important to be keen and uh, what have you. Anyway, this week, Fergal Sharkey, it's, it's an honour to have this guy on the show. We talk about all kinds of things. We talk about, obviously, his background. We talk about the music, the undertones, his solo career, his work in the music business. But first and foremost, we start talking, start off talking about uh, the environment, the, the rivers, the state of, of, of them, the work that Fergal has been doing in, in that, his activism. And it's a fascinating story. And it's fascinating but terrifying, frankly. But how much we don't know and, and, and how much we've been putting up with and uh, being completely unaware of. Uh, so you're going to enjoy that. If you want to have your mind slow, slightly b- blown away, then it's, it's a pretty solid 15, uh, first 15, 20 minutes about that. So, yeah, um, it's, it's an honour to have him on the show. He, he, he's a legend and I love the undertones. I was like 20, probably about eight, no, 19, 20 when I first got into the undertones. Um, I was always, I think I was always aware of Teenage Kicks, but, but then just bought a best of and then just got into it, got, it, got into them from there. Uh, went, went out to Madrid to see them play with a, with, a, with a girlfriend at the time and we had an amazing time. It was just one of those amazing gigs. I think we talk about that in this podcast. And yeah, it's just, um, it's a... It's a hell of a time, man, to be interviewing someone like Fergal Sharkey. For me, I mean, um, hell of a time. I mean, he's one of my heroes. And he, he, really, he really, he was worth every single minute, you know? He's a really amiable guy, lovely person. So, oh my God, on the money. One of the most articulate, on, on the money kind of guys I've ever spoken to, you know? Does just so on it. So it's terrifying when, you, when, you're, when you're talking, not terrifying, it's, it's I don't know what it is, but when you're talking to someone who's switched on like that, who's got an answer to everything and no fat on the bone, it's just straight down the line. This is, these are the facts. I, and I know this because I've studied them. And he's nice, he's not mincing his words. And it's wonderful to be, to be able to talk to him about the undertones and so much more. Oh my God, it's fantastic. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, the sound quality isn't as good as I would have liked. It was recorded in his kitchen. It was a massive kitchen. Uh, I turned up 15 minutes late because I forgot the time, which never happens, but that's what happens when you have kids. And uh, it, so bear with, bear with it. You'll get used to it. Don't worry, it's fine. Uh, and yeah, that's about it really. I think, I think other than that, you know, I don't want to rush through because I, I love talking this, this moment for me of the week, being able to talk to, reach out to people, especially in lockdown, has really, has become a big part of my last three or four months, I would say, when the shit's really started to hit the fan, you know, because this lockdown's been brutal and uh, we, it does feel like we're coming out the other end. Uh, it's just, I don't know about you, but I have this doubt. I have a doubt of whether the vaccines are going to hold up whether there's not going to be a third wave and all these terrible things that go round and round. And are we just now is, is the, I've just finished this book, Empire of the Sun. And there's a bit in it that talks about normality and how um, it's something that we build around ourselves, you know, like familiarity. We, we build these societies around ourselves to protect us from disasters that can happen. 
And in this book, the Second World War comes to Shanghai and all the normality that um, this child, Jim, is, is, is built around him, his society, everything that he's used to um, is blown apart, right? And okay, that hasn't happened here, obviously, but what has happened is we've seen the cracks in realities, the cracks in in all our usual routines and everything that is around us. And the fabric has been loosened somewhat and it's terrifying. And I think you have to acknowledge that. And I, I'm slowly acknowledging it, but trying not to freak out at the same time, because I'm, I'm sure that if we do get over this, then we will forget pretty bloody quickly, probably to our detriment, who knows? That's too early to say. But needless to say, sticking together is the most important thing. And for me to be able to, to share conversations with you, to reach out and talk, even if, even if it is just me talking into a microphone, looking out onto a field of pigeons eating seeds um, in a field, uh, then that's, that's fine, you know, it's something, it's an outlet for me. And uh, I wanna thank you for listening to the show. It's been really cool seeing the listening figures going up slightly. Uh, steadily slightly you know and um i don't know it, it, it's a good thing to have that sense of a teeny teeny community but it's good and you know neil landridge ed ross hello welcome as always uh, kevin smith white the three amigos of the limehouse podcast wall of fame how do you get onto the limehouse Wall of Fame. The Limehouse Podcast Wall of Fame is accessible by Twitter. If you tweet the show, say, hi, how you doing, Will, or something, I don't know, uh, then you will get on the Limehouse Podcast Wall of Fame. So tweet the show, LimehousePod at LimehousePod at LimehousePod. Or find us on Instagram, The Limehouse Podcast. Okay, yeah, breakdown achieved. Uh, yeah, so onwards and upwards, enjoy this chat. If you're looking for similar conversations, I will suggest to you that you go back just a couple of rows back and listen to the Mark Chadwick conversation, the singer from The Levelers, which was grand and fantastic. Enjoyed that a lot, I was very nervous, don't know why, still trying to analyze that. Um, and yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of them, bunch of music, conversa musical conversations I've had. Enjoy yourself, rock on, stay safe, at Limehouse Pod, the Limehouse Podcast at gmail.com. Reach out, get on the Limehouse Podcast Wall of Fame. It'll do you good. Okay, bye bye. Gosh, okay. How how are you? I'm very well. It's been a long day. Busy day. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's all good. I can't complain. Yeah. <laughs> why is it why has it been busy? Uh there's just a lot going on on a number of different fronts with rivers and uh other bits and pieces that are keeping me yeah. gainfully occupied through the average lockdown kind of a uh Monday. So it's all good. I can't complain. Yeah, no, I've I've been I follow you on Twitter and well as you know, and um, 
yeah, uh, your your activism is fan- fantastic, but it's 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 um it's kind of quite local activism in 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 a way, isn't it? Because you it seems like you deal with a lot of um re- you know sort of river based um activism and sort of um, environmental stuff that that comes from all over the country, but it's all very sort of particular and quite small, like Berkshire, and then there'll be one in like I don't know Scotland or one in and you you've um, got the whole air thing well, covered. It, it, it is on the basis that the uh, it's one of the discussion points going on right now and why I agreed to get involved in River Action last week, that new organisation. Historically, there always has been lots of, and I, I say this with enormous respect, very local community-based groupings of people, predominantly volunteers, predominantly getting into it initially with little, by the way, of knowledge and experience, when it comes to things like hydrology, entomology, um, and it's simply local people just noticing there's something yeah. wrong with their river. So you have hundreds of little groups ranging from the River Chess Association, the Friends of the River Mimram, the River Bean Restoration Association, the Friends of the Rib, and on the Clean Oakley campaign, and on and on. and. To some extent or other, they are some more successful than others. But yeah. really, I think what actually what it all needs is a really well managed, put together structure, drive, ambition, and fundamentally leadership. That's not to say that I'm the man to do that, by the way. But yeah. it is when you have no experience and nothing but an instinct and an urge to do something to help locally where you see the environment suffering. Um, it can be an incredibly daunting task to be suddenly faced by walls of bureaucracy like the Environment Agency, Whitehall, legislators and everything else, and the big world of politics and not knowing how to navigate it, respond to it, and indeed yeah. develop a strategic win out the other end of it. Yeah, no, I, I quite agree. I mean, in terms of, of politics and putting uh, hurdles in front of you, I mean... Oh my! I mean, it's endless, isn't it? What they, those those sort of um, the the levers of, of of power can dump on you in terms of they don't want something you know to be in any any form successful. Um, they can just go. Well, yeah, they go. don't. They, they, you know, the, the simple truth of the matter is, from my own personal involvement with Whitehall over the years, I, I've never really come across this kind of Machiavellian conspiracy thing, where it's dark more lazy, and, perhaps. Smoking and smoke, sitting in smoke-filled rooms in Whitehall, pulling <laughs> and controlling the nation at large. Um, <laughs> if you have to encounter that, it simply doesn't exist. What I think does particularly help when trying to navigate your way through something like the impact the water industry has had on the environment in England, it's important to understand the political context that you're operating in. Because ultimately what's been driving endless decisions for the last 30 years is a political decision about the price of water. And you couple that with a failure of regulation and suddenly you've got a disaster on your plate. And that's what we're now looking at, where at one end of the scale, there is not a single river in England that now meets good overall environmental status. Not one. Every single one is polluted. And at the other end of it, you have 25 million people in the south and southeast of England, now a cusp 
and a breath away from running out of drinking water. Really? Can we, break this, can, can, we, can we break this down a bit? Because for, I want to ask you what the main pollutant is then in rivers. I mean, I know that, that, that that's quite, you know, there must be a varied answer to that. A, 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 of course, there's a, good, a degree uh, of pollutants. The but... biggest polluter is actually agriculture okay. in terms of slurry and topsoil. But following very closely second place is the water industry. And between the two of them, they probably account for, if you need the exact number, I'll get it to you, but off the top of my head, getting on for 70% of all of the pollution in rivers is accounted God. for agriculture and the water industry. Yeah. And only again, regulation hasn't failed. God. What what is that? Is that keeping up with demand? Is it is it just is it laziness? Is it just no, no, trying to do the job cheaper? It is. It goes back to that political decision about the price of water. Okay. God, if you get bored, I'm going to leave you to edit this stuff down. Okay. No, no, no I love this. I love this, Virgo. This is great. Turn off. Um, <laughs> the UK government was taken to the European Court of Justice in 2012 for technically being a breach of what's known as the then Urban Wastewater Treatment Directive. In plain English, there is a chip shop owner in Whitburn in the northeast of England that noticed that his local water company was spending an awful lot of time dumping raw sewage onto Rocker Beach at Whitburn and managed to convince and persuade the European Commission to take the UK government to the European Court of Justice. So if anybody ever says the little guy can't do anything, I can tell you right now, Robert Latimer, a chip shop owner from Whitburn, deserves a massive round of applause because Robert proved that people, individuals can do great things. The yeah. European Court of Justice found that the UK was in breach for allowing water companies to dump sewage on a monotonously regular basis into English rivers. And in fact, the court ruled that whilst it would not say it shouldn't ever happen, but that it should only ever possibly happen in exceptional circumstances. And that yeah. phrase becomes key, exceptional circumstances. We now know from the last set of data from 2019, water companies in England spent over one and a half million hours dumping sewage into rivers in England. If anybody would care to explain to me what is remotely exceptional circumstances about over one and a half million hours. Oh my God, that is, that is blowing my mind. I cannot get my head around that. Does that help explain why there's not a single river in England that meets good overall environmental health? And this, uh, oh my, I mean, obviously we, we, we've got Brexit and we've, and then we've got COVID, but why isn't, I mean, that isn't, well, how come that isn't on the agenda quite so much? Or, or at least I, I have no idea about that. And I, I like to think that I'm pretty well, politically it's, it's, uh, minded. Again, so. it goes back and I say this with enormous love and respect. Um, you're dealing with little voluntary community groups who, although committed and passionate and determined and driven, have no experience about how to drive a national media campaign. You're dealing predominantly with charities that look after conservation charities that look after rivers. And again, their remit in life is to, and again, I say this with enormous respect, 
to very localized colloquial bits of river restoration and litter picks and all this kind of stuff. And that's not to say any of that work is not relevant. It is massively relevant, but it yeah. still does not equip you to drive a piece of contentious national legislation or get legislation overturned or amend statute or drive a very well-focused, very aggressive media campaign to derive the kind of attention this needs. With, in all honesty, right now, with one notice, notable exception, and that's the Clean Oakley campaign, a grouping of local people in Ilkley in Yorkshire realised that there were things like used sanitary pads, condoms, the normal defrates of yeah. the sewage system floating down the middle of the river wharf through Ilkley. God. And they started asking questions. Yeah. and got rebuffed and got the ring around and that brick wall of, oh, we're the experts and here's all the pseudoscience we have. And being the canny Yorkshire people that they are, they had clearly very, very sensitive bullshit detectors. And yeah. Yeah. them ran an utterly brilliant campaign. And in fact, the real stroke of genius they came up with, because all they wanted, I think, was for somebody to stop dumping sewage into their river. And after many rebuttals from the Environment Agency and the local water company, they came up with this absolute stroke of genius. Until the last few weeks, there is not a single river in England designated as bathing quality standard. Well, the simple truth is because government has never actually allocated that kind of criteria to a single river. Because yeah. if you do that, you then have to start taking measurements of that water and you then have to start asking questions about the water quality. So no better way than to make a problem disappear than simply not designate anywhere as bathing water quality stages. Hooray! <laughs> Until people <laughs> came along. And oh then they God. put together an application to become the first stretch of river in England that would have uh, accredited to it bathing quality standards. And about a month ago, government were basically forced into a corner and had to basically issue uh, this certification. And now it means that the Environment Agency, begrudgingly, I suspect, will now have to start monitoring the quality of that water on a monotonously regular basis. To give you a clue, uh, again, this is from memory, I think the globally recognised standard for E. coli is about 400 parts per million or whatever it is, how they measure this stuff. The guys yeah. in Oakley actually measured E. coli levels that were effectively 100 times higher than the threshold required for bathing water quality standards. I.e. people were effectively swimming in their own excrement. Oh, God. That is so, that is and sick and terrifying. Tell me again, that's not a failure of regulation. Oh, my God. That is, of course, total. I mean, it's People total. have known this I... forever. People have known it since 2012 when the European Court ruled it's illegal. You shouldn't be doing it. Stop it. Except in exceptional circumstances. Yeah. Or what old and... school lawyers would refer to as an act of God. What? So what, what are your... What are your hopes and fears of Brexit then? Do you think that, that we're just going to 
do you think well, well be, I, I can be incredibly flippant about it because the simple truth is there's a harp in the front of my passport oh, right okay yeah <laughs> oh dear the, yeah. the, weird thing, the weird thing is that uh, Irish people are allowed to live in this country originally under a, a treaty from 1924 and because of Brexit, I did find myself last year going online and actually checking. And I'm pleased to announce that treaty has been ratified again. So Irish people <laughs> can continue to live in England. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Like, I, I'm just, I'm part of me is a little bit terrified, and I, I don't have any faith. I'm sorry in, in Michael Gove or what have you. Um, in terms of we leave the European Union, we will keep the same standards. What you've just described to me there seems like without the European Union, there is no rod to kind of beat the government with here at all, or stick rather. Um, well, listen, as it stands right now, there is a environment bill before Parliament. The environment lobby uh, on a national level has failed so far quite, quite catastrophically to influence the development and drafting of that bill. And my own personal opinion, as it stands, the Environment Bill is basically a framework to reverse and roll back environmental standards in the UK. Uh, that bill is due to go back before Parliament again in the autumn, September, October. And if anybody has an interest in the environment, they need to watch that very carefully. And I will happily put it on record right now, the Environment Lobby that has been dealing with that bit of legislation or that potential bit of legislation so far has catastrophically failed to influence government's agenda with regards to that bill. That does not surprise me. This is very eye-opening, I must say, Virgil. I, I reckon if we had a couple of hours free, we could really <laughs> get into it. I almost want to have like a third person in here as well. I'd love to mediate a conversation about it because it's just quite exciting because... As I said in our, our um, correspondence, this show used to be very politically, um, I don't know what you call it, channeled. And yeah. um, I used to have some debates with some people about like the NHS or what have you. And, and it was, that was always quite fun because I'd be learning and watching two people talking about it. But in this instance, I'm learning with not, not much knowledge to, to base it on, but <laughs> still very eager. So a childlike eagerness here, Fergal, which is good. Well, the, but, um, the, the, the one kind of part of the conversation that we touched upon that Brexit is currently being catastrophic towards is the music industry. Oh, Utterly yeah. catastrophic. Um, and right now it is just a complete basket case. Touring, record sales, all of it is just has now the potential very loosely, there is this thing called the Anglo-American catalogue, and think of it as American music and British music, which, let's face it, dominates the world. And very loosely, in terms of Europe, about 80% of all music consumption in Europe historically would have been the Anglo-American catalogue, British and American music. So, so far, it's looking like a complete and utter disaster, and clearly now has the potential to make life incredibly more difficult for the British music industry and don't at all be surprised if it starts losing market share to other countries in Europe. So what's the... Potentially what? massively disadvantaged. Yeah, no, I mean, because my, my, my mind is, 
made not necessarily made up but it kind of goes in the way that they literally just hung out the music industry to dry simply because it's the music industry and it's not banking it's not you know uh farming it's 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 kind of like a soft a soft finance right it's not taken with all that much gravitas it's not just the music industry it is what's generically termed as the creative industries so music film design architecture and you mentioned soft power uh, for the record, the British creative industries generate about 110, 115 billion pounds worth of GDP in this country. Uh, that is probably about five or six billion short of the financial services. So as it turns out, when people think about young people wanting to get involved in the music industry, they're doing nothing more than making room, making noise in the back room of a pub on a Tuesday night. Well, it turns out when those boys and girls grow up to be big boys and girls, their contribution to this nation nation is just as significant and just as important as any banker, any hedge fund manager, or any VC capital fund manager or anything else. Yeah, yeah, it's no, that's so it's, it's so true. So, where do you think it? Where do you think this has come from? Where, where do you think the, the, I don't know, the genesis of this complete fuck-up has come from in terms uh, of like... Totally wild speculation. People do see being a musician as unskilled. And yeah. I, I have no reason to believe this. I have no evidence. So it's just utter speculation on my part. Because of the rhetoric around Brexit, and particularly with unrestricted migration and travel and work in this country uh, and borders and everything else, I suspect somebody somewhere had a huge concern that if the Europeans were going to allow British musicians unrestricted travel around the rest of Europe, the rest of Europe would ask for reciprocity. And that would mean that we have swarms of unskilled French, German, Austrian musicians Dreaming up yeah, yeah. high streets throughout England, undermining society and terrorising adults. <laughs> and I suspect sitting behind it was the right to free movement. And you're right. Somebody in government decided that they could sacrifice the British creative industries and British artists and musicians and composers and songwriters and designers and everything else involved with the creative industries simply to preserve this ideological end stop. Where do you see it ending? Like, well, sorry, not ending, concluding it. Is, will there, do you think there can be a conclusion to this? Because I speak to a lot of bands on this show and young and up-and-coming bands and what have you, and it's not just the lockdown that's crippling them, but it's it's then, God, the, the Brexit debate um, <laughs> that comes to the fore now. When how, Can you see it being tied up at all? Are the government even um, well, the, the, the organisation that I set up, UK Music, is working ferociously hard right now uh, yeah. I want to work with government. Um, it's not something I'm directly involved in, and I indeed try to keep it very much not get involved in any of it. As I retired from all of that ten years ago, he and did, yeah. there's an executive, and he's a very bright, capable individual, and they need to be left to get on with it. So I suspect there's going to be a bit of a bumpy road to travel, and then with a bit of luck, the grown-ups will get in the room. And everybody will go, oh, shit, how did that happen? How did we ever allow that to happen? Quick, we better fix it. And it'll get fixed. It's just... It's just it is terrifying. A, a few road humps to get over to get there. 
Yeah, oh, that's positive. You know, I mean, El- I think Elton. If one once you know you get Elton John out there and like he's saying stuff, you know something's up. You know, I was watching like you get Elton John on six right uh, six um, six o'clock news and you hear yep. you know it's like oh okay people are actually taking this but seriously. There is a massive illogical contradiction when you have and again it's no disrespect to the British fishing industry that contributes what 1.5 billion quid that has justifiably all of this attention and support and then governments turning its back on 110 to 115 billion pounds worth of GDP somebody's possibly maybe wants to rethink some of their priorities but you know what maybe you can actually do both at the same time but the thing is and I don't want to make this an hour of, of chat about brexit but i don't give a shit who cares but <laughs> it's yeah it's i'll say it again i've got an irish passport i don't care <laughs> <laughs> but it it's 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 imperialism but it's not it's it's like we've got to worry about our fish and we've got to worry about the fish and you, you said that you know that our actual gdp of fish is minuscule in comparison to the music industry and what have you in the creative arts industry it how has that happened? How has it become? We've become so ignorant to that. I, maybe it's taking it, we've just taken it for granted. It's back to politics. And it's back to, and it's again, gone back to the environment, actually. Because uh, it is the same understanding of the broader political sensitivities and the broader political objectives yeah. and agendas at play throughout Whitehall and government and parliament. And it's been sensitive to them. And knowing when to push and push hard and when to be supportive and collaborative. Mm. No, absolutely. Right now, but... Clearly, there's an ideology that says we want as a nation, the UK wants control of its borders. Good. So now you're going to have restrictions on workers coming into this, this country. And now you have a huge debate about what that restriction looks like and how big and broad and ex- how extensive it is. And what you need to do to get a key to the doorway to get through that wall. And it's the same with the environment. Politically, for 30 years, successive governments have not been prepared to authorise the investment by water companies to ensure and safeguard not only future water supply for 25 million people in the south and southeast, but the damage and impact the water industry is having on the environment. Because nobody wanted to take the political flight. That your bill's gone up 50 quid this year. Jesus. Nobody wants to take responsibility for that. You, you, but it's okay. You said you've had a- guess what? 25 million people in the south and southeast of London, or England, are now running out of water. So guess what? Water prices and prices of water bills are going up. It's only a matter of how much and when. God. Water is going to be the new thing, isn't it? Like oil water what's next i mean but it's it's interesting that you said you've been doing this all day and your energy levels are like so high this is you this is pretty impressive i mean i know i've got two kids and everything but i don't i don't know how you do you've got so much passion and and energy for this like it really and you're so i mean i hope this doesn't come across as patronizing but you're so articulate i mean bearing in mind what time of night it is as well it's like well, uh, you're I'm not so jealous of the thing. Are you've uh, all musicians by necessity have a lobotomy when they're fifteen? Come on, <laughs> I'm not the only so, musician out there by any stretch of the imagination. I know quite a yeah. few. 
It's just, I think what I'm trying to say is I think you're possibly the most articulate person I've had in this podcast in a little while. I mean, <laughs> that said, I did just put up Christopher Guest um, last night, which was quite cool. And he's he, he's articulate, but very, very slow and, and, and monitored, I, less passionate. I love, I love... I love speaking to people that are passionate about politics. It's made it's actually has made me nostalgic for when this po- when this podcast was way more political. But anyway, um, can we talk about Derry and and where, where you <laughs> well, grew they up? Go, politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, just out of the frying pan into the fire. Um, God, I sounded like a, a, a capital DJ then. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Next up, Fergal Sharky. Um, what what nineteen what so you were born nineteen fifty eight is that right yep yeah yeah so when I mean Derry what was Derry like when you were growing up as a, as a well as a boy? listen here's the thing like anybody's grown up in any local neighbourhood that is your sole source of reference so you're not in a position because you don't have any other reference points and there's no broader context within which to judge things. So things are the way they are. And you just crack on with it and you get on with it. Uh, you are right in... I had a particularly kind of a... By the comparison from most other people living in the United Kingdom, possibly a slightly different upbringing and childhood, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, both my parents were very politically activated. My father was the chairman of the Labour Party in Derry when there was such a thing. He was the branch secretary of the Electricians Union in Derry. I can still remember the trauma of being taken to a union meeting in and realising there was this room full of men all referring to my father as Brother Sharky, trying to figure <laughs> out who the fuck are these people? They're not my own. I have no idea who these people are. Why are they all calling my dad Brother Sharky? I guess the best example I can give you uh, as part of the civil rights movement, there was this uh, kind of, the real left wing of it was called People's Democracy Party. And it was, again, I'm saying this very loosely. It was all, all the kind of proper Marxist, Trotskyites, anarchists within the civil rights movement. And I can still vividly remember, I think it must have been about 1969, so I'd have been 10, 11 years old, uh, walking down in a protest march down the main road between Belfast and Dublin, uh, waving what I later learned was actually an anarchist flag. And as a 10-year-old thinking, how fantastic is this? You're allowed to walk down the main road to Dublin, waving this flag on a day out. So, listen, you grew up in Derry, Politics was an issue. Politics was always going to be an issue. Um, yeah. It is all now water under the bridge. And gerrymandering was alive and well in the 1960s in Derry. If you were Catholic and male, you were amongst the 60% of people unemployed in Derry. Because 60% of Catholics were unemployed. You yeah. probably were never going to get a job. You were probably never going to get a council house. You probably were never at a local election elect enough people, even though Catholics by far and away were the majority of the local population because of gerrymandering and the way that ward and electoral boundaries were drawn. It meant yeah. that the Protestant community would invariably elect the majority of councillors to the local council, even though they were yeah. only 30% of the local population. So 
politics was alive and well, and if you were operating, breathing in Derry in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, politics was just part and parcel of your everyday diet. God, sectarianism. I just, I'm, I'm just reading a, a book, a autobiography by Pat Nevin at the moment. Um, yeah. One of my one of my heroes, and um, he's talking about sectarianism, the Rangers and Celtic, and what have you, and and mm-hmm. how I don't know how debilitating it is, how um, heartbreaking. Oh, yeah, it is. I said that you know, Derry. I clearly haven't lived there for probably forty years now, um, and in the rare occasions I do go back, Derry has utterly, utterly, utterly transformed itself. It bears little of any relation to the town that I grew up in. And it's now a multicultural, vibrant, prosperous, outward-looking, positive town and a huge round of applause to everybody involved in what happened. It is unrecognizable. And all the better for And when you're when you're a young when you're a young guy, right, when does when does something come in that, that, that I don't know alleviates or distracts you from the political, um, I don't know, maelstrom you're involved in. Where- and that's kind of why the undertones existed. Yeah. One of the reasons. Um, it's one of the reasons we used to find it quite odd when we began kind of having a career and signed to Sire Records and all that kind of stuff. And invariably English journalists, well, not just English, just journalists around the world, we're going, oh, but, you know, some of the bands from the bog site and the Craigan and you're from Derry. Why aren't you writing about bombs and bullets? And it's like, well, do you fucking think we'd anything, you know, do you really think that's what we wanted to do on a Friday night? We're in a little pub with our mates. They're all 18, 19, 20. They didn't need a lecture from us about bombs and barricades. Hell, there was a barricade outside the door of the Casbah. We did it because that was our outlet and our escape for a few hours. Hence, they're rather wonderfully titled. Here's more songs about chocolate and girls. Right, yeah, I want a Mars bar. I mean, it's like, for me, um, escapism is a central part to most most teenage boys and what have you, girls, people. (laughs) But in your circumstance, I mean, escapism and then some, right? Um, But yeah, but again, listen, here's, and I cannot emphasise this enough, when you're living in those kind of difficult circumstances all day long, that is your normality. You yeah. have no context. Yeah. You did not know any other life. So nobody was sitting there going, oh, woe with me, this is all dreadful, look at me, how terrible is this? And it's not the same parallel, but if you go and speak to people that are, as we speak in the modern world, growing up in any area of deprivation, any area of poverty, of difficulty, you know, those kids are just living the lives that they've been given. Yeah. So when was it that you, So when did you step out of that world and realise what's actually going on? Or, um, I mean, was wider news, wider exposure? Um, in terms of doing what? I don't, in terms of like looking at your environment, in terms of like the political environment and the, so what, the, the troubles that, at the time. What have achieved that wasn't already going on? Yeah. I mean, it's just... Because for for me personally, I know when you talk about that, like your environment and just not being aware of like it being strange or weird or, or harsh or brutal or what have you, it's just life. You're just in it. I get that. Yeah. Um, but there comes a time when you you grow older and you you look back and go, fucking hell, that was actually that was 
pretty oh, intense. Yeah, no, 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 but, but believe me, the undertones actually did. Uh, let alone Frank, if uh, you go and I can't remember which one it was, mate. Uh, it was just after Bobby Sands died, I think, when we did Top of the Pops. You will see the undertones all wearing black armbands. We didn't tell anybody what we were doing. We just did it. Yeah. So you don't have to go out there and wear a big symbol in your chest all day long to make statements and push things forward and have a voice and have an opinion. Sometimes you can do it quietly and even subversively. Yeah. It's still just as big an impact. Dignity. I love that. Yeah. Um, there you go. What's um? So I mean, because we've kind. I've. What I'd love to know is what it, what you were like as a boy. What was the first kind of. I don't know, song, genre, what was the kind of music when it was first came into you? What was it like when it spoke to you? Uh, again, I come from, even by dairy standards, not a particularly usual family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my mother, in particular, for many, many years, had been involved in organising an uh, annual Irish traditional festival in Derry called Face Not a Column Kill. Uh, it was set up to promote, preserve, nurture, maintain the Irish language and culture. And if you were a member of the Sharkey family, one way or another, you were participating in the annual event that was faced at a column kill. So if you couldn't sing, you would unfortunately have to do Irish dancing. If you couldn't do Irish dancing, you would have to tell read poetry. And if you couldn't read poetry, you would be sweeping up the cloakroom or making tea or something. But one way right, yeah. anticipating. So in the Sharkey household, and I'm second youngest of eight kids, uh, everybody else above me is quite a bit older. So it was always a household that was full of music. And it did range from Irish traditional music through to older brothers and sisters discovering then and Van Morrison and the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So the house was always full of music. So for me, did music suddenly become this revolution on the road to Damascus or something? No, it didn't. It was just always there as a daily home to my everyday life. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And so like, when was like the, I don't know, when was the, the first moment when you kind of got a vibe from just, being musical with other guys and, and, and what have you, and just like jamming for the yeah. first time. I mean, I want to say jamming, but like it can be really accidental, can't it? Sometimes you just be in a room, you're not even meant to be making music, and somewhat suddenly you're all going for it. It's fantastic. Um, well, again, uh, bearing in mind my own personal context here, um, I was actually singing uh, since I was probably eight, nine, ten years old. Mm -hmm. That uh, I guess the best outward display of that is the photograph on the cover of Jimmy Jimmy, the undertone single of a little boy with a bad fringe holding up a cup. Uh, that's me, uh, 10, 11 years old, having won a singing competition, an Irish yeah. singing competition. So I was singing in you know, pubs and stuff since I was eight, nine, ten years old, and singing in traditional Irish competitions. So by the time we get round to form in the undertones, I was kind of, you know, a bit of a seasoned professional at that point and had no fear whatsoever of standing in front of a microphone. None. Right, okay. Yeah. Okay, I, was, I was a drummer in a church band for years and I thought that that might, might have aided me in some way uh, when, I, when it came to actually gigging in my late teens. Yeah. It didn't help. 
I've always just been terrified of performing. Like, what were you like? Would you, you got rid of the, were you um, ever nervous or? No, well, that's because, uh, you know, I, I guess somewhere inherent in me, like all front men, there's a bit of a show up working in their background somewhere. So I've, I've never felt particularly terrified about any of it in the yeah. least. Um, yeah. And particularly, I guess, just the way it starts out where, I can't remember it, but I would not be surprised if it actually all began sitting in the corner of a pub one night with some of my older brothers or some something. When, as the Irish, and it's a bit of an old cliche, but it is true, when the Irish would get into a bit of a session and somebody would turn up with a fiddle and a boron and people would start singing and playing and all that kind of good stuff. And invariably somebody would go, oh, Fergal, can you sing? So you started singing in front of you know, half a dozen people you know. Yeah. And the next week, it's in front of a dozen people, you know, and the week after that, 20 people, you know, and the week after that, it's 30 people, but you don't yeah. know five of them. So by the time it got to the undertones where it's like, well, who cares? Yeah, it's just another room full of people. doesn't matter. Yeah. So so when do you and Michael and John and all, all the, the guys start, like, hanging out together? Is that, like, is that, was, did you... Um, well, I was introduced to because they, they had the idea before my band. Uh, and I guess that was about 78 or something, or 76. Um, and it wasn't, by the way, that there was some kind of structure there. It was, they were all friends. They decided to form a band. Nobody could play a damn thing. Nobody had any instruments. Nobody owned drums or guitars or anything else. It's just four kids sitting bored out of their minds in a room going, oh, let's form a band. Oh, that's okay, let's do that then. <laughs> And it was Billy, who was in the same class as me. And Billy went, well, I know Fergal Sharkey, he sings. So we'll get him along to be the singer. There you go. Plus he's got a cool name, you know. Fergal Sharkey, well, cool, cool name. I can only blame the parents for that one. <laughs> it is such a cool name. Um, but, um, no, it's, it's just, I, I just, I mean, just before I forget, basically, this is, this is a tangent, but I've been in a few bands and what have you, no success, no. what have you, but... I named one of them after one of your songs. It was it's called the Jump Pilots, but it was after Jump Boys. Yeah. Um, I went. I just went through a period of just being completely and utterly obsessed with the undertones. Right. Um, and then the on, thing to be doing. <laughs> yeah, and then on top of that, I saw Good Vibrations. Um, well, the movie. And yeah, and what's your taking of that film? Because that is probably. I mean. Oh, you stand to really insult me here, but it's probably my top 10 favourite films of all time. So. I think it's fantastic, and I was really pleased it got made. I was absolutely delighted for Terry Hooley. Uh, I can remember Davey Holmes, David Holmes, phoning me up. Is, uh, David Holmes produced it, I think, or helped produce it. Uh, and David was phoning me up, uh, asking... Uh, it was one of those weird things. Uh, I, I was running UK Music at the time, and just the way that generational thing. Uh, David, of course, by that point through, uh, I think it was Sugar Shack in Belfast, had become a bit of a globally recognized superstar DJ, stroke Hollywood movie, sound producer, composer kind of thing. <laughs> and I think it was my PA went to the office and she was almost slightly anxious. And, and bearing in mind, this was a woman that fended off phone calls all day long from chairman of large multinational record companies and all that kind of stuff. And she rarely came into my office to announce this kind of thing. And she came in and went, David Holmes is on the phone <laughs> looking for you. <laughs> I was like, well, bloody, we'll put him through. And then you could just see the shock. She's going, it's David Holmes. 
David Holmes. <laughs> and of course, David was going to become licensed teenage kicks. And I think my response was, well, the good news for you, David, is there's somebody who does that kind of work for the undertones. So you're not going to have to negotiate with this with me because I would be already going, let me see if I can work this out, David. You're doing a movie about good vibrations and Terry Hooley and you need to license Teenage Kicks. And I'm now just about to ask you for some outrageously over-the-top amount of money because you're not making a movie about good vibrations and Terry Hooley and Belfast and the label and Teenage Kicks without being able to play Teenage Kicks. <laughs> but it's great. I love it. It was absolutely yeah. fantastic. I'm delighted, genuinely delighted for Terry that it got made. Yeah, it's it's an epic story. I think it's it's a heartbreaking movie as well when when you think about the the context it puts in in the early stages and and the bands that were, you know, suffered terrible fates and what have you. Um, you know, losing their lives for crying out loud. Um, I mean, it it paints a pretty stark picture, but. In terms of your record label, you you you, you touched on earlier, Sire Records. So you, you label shared with um, the Ramones. Um, yeah. When was your? You didn't label share with the Ramones. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. I was going. Hang on. I'm sure. I'm sure I've got that. I don't. I don't care anything right ever. But I know this one. But the, uh, one of the first gigs we ever did in England, as a result of signing to Sire Records, was to support the Ramones in the Lyceum Ballroom. And in fact, it was Didi Ramon that taught me how to use stage monitors. I'd never seen a set of monitors in my life before. And suddenly <laughs> I was at this huge venue in London with no idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> so I can, with some confidence, say it was Didi Ramon kind of twigged that I had fucking clue what I was doing. I went, Would you like some help? Me show me how you set these things up and how to balance <laughs> So, yeah. And what, like, can you, can you remember the, um, can you remember the force of which the Ramones played or the, or the sonic, the, the feeling that you got well, from this, seeing this those guys? I'd actually seen them just before we played with them. Uh, is when Michael Bradley and I came to London to negotiate this deal. Uh, we went with Seymour Stein and Linda, his then wife, to the Hammersmith Odeon where the uh, Ramones were playing that night. And as you can imagine, leaving Derry in the morning and then at nine o'clock at night, you're standing in the Hammersmith Apollo and the Ramones walk on stage and go, Manchester Evoke! <laughs> and it just explodes. God. I just, I just think there are a few, there, there's a, there are a couple of bands I wish I'd seen on a, on a double bill before, and it was the Cribs uh, and the Strokes yeah. in uh, some venue in Paris. And I think the undertones in the Ramones would, would be very, very close to that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like unbelievable. I thought that would just been what a night. I mean, can you remember like the, the early, the early days, the chemistry, what it was like to be in a band like you said that seemed so green, like you hadn't even played with monitors before, and you were now just like playing gigs with the Ramones, touring. Yeah, but doing very, that very, whole thing. very in mind that uh, the undertones because of. It sounds like a bit of an old cliche, but in the case of Derry, it's actually true. Uh, if you were a teenager in Derry, there really was nothing to do. So we would just practice pretty much every day and practice quite hard. And then we got a residency and then we started gigging and we would try and gig two, three times a week. So, you know, in the three or four days that we weren't gigging, we'd practice because there was fuck all else to do. 
So by the time we got to walk on that stage at the Lyceum Ballroom, we were actually a pretty tight bloody band. Pretty yeah. shit hot. You know, the fact yeah. that you didn't know how all of this worked, well, that didn't matter because just the nucleus of the band was bloody fantastic. And you are right, sometimes that it is that combination of personalities and egos and everything else. And sometimes those five people in that room will work. Where if you take three of them out and replace them, it's not the same. And it yeah. will yeah. have that same intensity or ferocity or focus to it. Yeah. One of those weird chemistry things. That'll never that'll never be repeated, will it, that era? I mean that 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 um that wildness, like that sense of chaos. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I wasn't of that era, but I just don't feel like that could necessarily be repeated. Personally, I would argue that it did in the mid mid nineteen eighties when dance music started developing in the underground in this country. And uh, yeah. techno and house started, but I'm talking about you know, troll <laughs> down in the yeah. cross. And for me, that was an extraordinarily exciting time to be around. Watching yeah. all that electronic music coming in from North America and Germany and stuff, and then watching classic, in many ways, replicating the 1960s. British DJs yeah. absorbed that on an underground level and people in audiences and nightclubs absorb it and then begin to regurgitate it and reshape it and push it back out again. And watch yeah. how the likes of New Order began to develop and Quango Quango in Manchester and all kinds of stuff. But yeah. I would defy you to go and sit and listen to Voodoo Ray by a guy called Gerald and just tell me that was a fucking great record. Yeah, no, I mean, like, for sure. I think my problem is the, or necessarily my problem, my, there, is so, there are a few genres I just, I can't, I haven't explored enough yet. But what I have totally brutal music. The first time I heard KKK um, took my baby away by the Ramones, I, um, I was driving, I'd just got my driving license, I was about 27. And I, I remember listening to it, Radio 1, and um, being sonically moved by, I wouldn't say like, you know, one of those, I had to stop the car moments like John Peel yeah, had with no, you. I get it. But I could say the yeah. same thing about standing in a nightclub uh, with about 400 other people in the mid 1980s, hearing experience by a hard floor for the first time. And just thinking, Jesus Christ, what the hell is this? And my heart <laughs> just singing for joy. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, that period now, it's very easy, and I try to be quite sensitive about it, that I don't lapse into 62-year-old man going, oh, when I was a boy, we could go to bloody Bogner and buy fish and chips and buy a, <laughs> a family of 10. Um, it's not been quite as creative the last couple of decades, shall we say, if that's been polite. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, always, I'm always fascinated, and I, again, say this with enormous admiration for the man, uh, I, I'm fascinated by the idea that somebody like David Alborn can still go out there and be relevant. That shouldn't be allowed, David. And by the way, yeah. I love what you're doing, I love your records. But, you know, you're getting on a bit and uh, you're not 17 anymore. And where is the next generation of 17 year olds going, who is this old fucker? What's this what, what you said? all about? Fuck you, mate. I'll make better records than that. <laughs> yeah. You stepped back, didn't you, from the music industry? Did was that like a look? I'm, I'm the next generation is coming through. It's their well, turn, sort of. What thing. in terms of making records or yeah, performing, uh, yeah, yeah, making. No, that's and... a, uh, I, I was heading towards my thirtieth birthday, 
I began to have a reoccurring nightmare that uh, I would be find myself quite quickly with a receding hairline and a ponytail pretending I was going to be back on top of the pops one day soon. <laughs> and I decided that that was not something I was ambitious to attain. And that at 30 years old, naively, stupidly, arrogantly thought that I might still have time left to go and develop some kind of other career path in the music industry and yeah. still be able to something that I find fulfilling and that I felt motivated and driven to go and get involved in every single day. So I gave yeah. up making music and went off and did a whole bunch of other stuff instead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Like I said, if we had two two hours, five hours, I mean, what have you, I don't know if we'd get get through it all. This is why I'm kind of like anxious. Um, you wouldn't know it, but I'm feeling quite anxious because I want to, I want to talk to you about, you know, your relationship with... Um, teenage kicks like hearing that for the first time whether it is one of those sort of movie moments that stopped you in your tracks or well, was it we all, uh, well you listen, it? for the record the teenage kicks ep uh we didn't think teenage kicks was the best song on there by any shot in the imagination uh in fact the initial test pressings we got back if i remember we thought sounded pretty dreadful compared to what we'd left in the studio so I remember being incredibly deflated and fucked off by the whole thing and having these records under the bed thinking, what the hell are we now supposed to do with these? <laughs> um, so it came as a bit of a shock to us that everybody kind of went, oh, this Teenage Kicks thing. Um, like doing anything, you get so close to it, it's quite difficult to see the broader horizon of it. And it was probably... Uh, I'm trying to think when that period would have been, early 1990s, so you're talking about a good, good 20 years later. I was actually driving through Piccadilly Circus in my car one Saturday afternoon, and it came on the radio. And by that point, I was 20, 25 years away from it. And that was really the first time that I just sat in my car and went, shit, this is actually quite good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 25 years, that that's something else. I've, I just find it so... Because, you know, I, I really communicate a lot... With, not, sorry, John, I, John Peel really com communicate with me a lot, um, <laughs> vaguely related to him, actually. And, and I'm, I've basically... Um, I heard this story, you know, when I was younger about this, you know, his love for that song and, and way, way, way before he passed away. And then I started thinking about my own um, relationships with songs. And there's a song um, by the Future Heads, uh, Decent Days and Nights. Right. And which I, I think that bears a pretty good, um, it has a pretty good relationship with Teenage Kicks. It's got kind of like, it's reasonably on the same lines. It's got the same energy. It's got the same simplicity. Okay. Um, and do you, do you know it? No, I don't. No, I'll, I'll forward you a link. It's absolutely, it's just, I'm, and I, I am to the, and it's, I'm, 20 years down the line, I still want that played at my funeral like John had at his at his funeral were you in attendance for John's funeral uh, I was and I will happily concede I was just about holding it together until they played Teenage Kicks in Bury St Edmunds Cathedral and at that point yeah. I completely lost it yeah moving uh, yeah it just comes from it just comes from somewhere I think it's just like music isn't it just like grief or it just sadness can come from those unexpected place, um, places. Well, and... listen, John, John clearly had a life that touched 
an incredible number of people. Um, I'll give you a story. Uh, between John passing away and his funeral, I was walking across Leicester Square. And a guy came walking towards me, looking quite disheveled, somewhat unkept. An old sleeping bag wrapped over his shoulders and stuff in the paper cup. And my instincts and prejudice kicked in. And I also thought, okay, this guy's going to go for it. Have you got 50p for a cup of coffee? I.e., have you got 50p so I can go buy another can of Carlsberg special brew? I was completely and utterly wrong. Don't ever make any presumptions about anybody. What this guy wanted to talk to me about, he had come from Glasgow. He'd been homeless for three or four years. He, his one bit of comfort in life was a little radio at night when he was sleeping in the doorway of Boots the Chemist listening to John Peel and how John had given him his whole musical education. There you go. That's the kind of impact John Peel had. Yeah. Do you know, Pat Nevin's got a very, very similar um, story in his new book. I, I can't even talk about it because yeah. I'll probably put this out before the book because uh, I'm not allowed to talk about, I'm not allowed to talk about the book. But it's... <laughs> but in that case, don't a, talk about it. Yeah, he had a close relationship with John Peel and um, he was on the... He came on... He, he'd sit in on sessions with him as well and yeah. um, what have you. I think I did take him for granted, actually. I always thought he'd be here forever and it's just no, a... Well, it's not one of those things, you know, you don't realise what you got until it's gone. I believe yeah. somebody wrote a song about that. <laughs> so can, can we just briefly talk and we haven't got a great deal of time left and we and you um and i was late so i'm really sorry about that but i've recently been listening to your your first solo um album and i fucking love it i i fucking love it it's got everything on it i mean <laughs> it really is just and i you know i'm gonna be perfectly honest with you i i was like Okay, you know, I'm a cynical bastard now. I'm 39. I've got to that age. Run away at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, well, what's it going to sound like? What's this going to be like? And and I just can't stop listening to it. It's absolutely fantastic. It feels, I feel like I'm talking about a new album, which effectively is, but I feel like it's just released today, obviously. (laughs) But I mean, I I knew, obviously, I knew about a a good heart, what a a cracking song that is. But the people that wrote, is it, um, it's a, a Good Heart and um, You Little Thief. Yeah. Ben Montench, did he write You Little Thief? Yeah, Ben wrote You Little Thief, yeah. Yeah, and then A Good Heart was written by his ex-girlfriend. That's not true. And it's not true. <laughs> this, is, this is why I fucking <laughs> hate Wikipedia. I'm afraid it's just become a bit, a bit of urban mythology, and it isn't true. <sighs> Damn. Because it's so cool, isn't it? It's like you think about that, it's so cool. It's like a question and answer yeah. with two yeah. songs. I've never I'm heard that. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, because I'm a massive Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers fan. So well, can you? Can, what, what's Ben Mont like? And, uh, and what was ben the Ben is the like? sweetest, sweetest guy in the world. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, incredibly adorable man, and actually writes a good, writes a mean tune, as it turns out. And particularly in that case, yeah. called uh, "You Little Thief." So no, I've got to spend some time. Some it's been a while now since I've seen Ben last. Uh, we occasionally converse in the world of social media, but kind yeah. of glancing passes in the night, kind of a thing. Uh, yeah. But uh, some years ago, I got to spend some time with Ben. I can remember one memorable evening sitting around his house while he just sat at the piano and just played stuff at the piano. And you're just hanging out going, this Ben Montage playing the piano. Oh, well, okay, carry on. <laughs> All's normal. So he's an incredibly sweet guy. Lovable, lovable guy. 
Yeah. And like that song, because um, I'm quite interested in your vocal performance in that, um, in terms of, because I know that obviously there are bands and, and um, other things after the undertones or what have you, but how did you, did you have any kind of particular um, idea or mindset of how you were going to do your vocal delivery on the new album? Was there any sort of, were you conscious about it? Well, listen, every, every song you sing is down to, uh, when, when you get down to the record and the recording, the singer's job's very straightforward. The singer's job is to communicate and tell the story and yeah. to reach out and touch the listener in some way, shape or form. And that invariably is dictated by the song and the arrangement and everything else. Where You Little Thief, I think Dave Stewart and I had this idea, it was more that we'd conjured up this kind of slightly mad notion for You Little Thief about this really extraordinary live band on stage, this huge massive band on stage that was playing the song that just made your head explode and that you couldn't help just kind of pounding the beat out. And that kind of then drove the shape of the arrangement, which in the end up became a complete fucking nightmare. <laughs> uh, I think somewhere upstairs, I do have something like 57 different mixes of You Little Thief. Now, it's all proper, proper musician heads shoved right up your ass, lost sight of what the hell you were doing. And it's turned that blue knob just you know, millimetre that way and that green knob back the other way. What I do remember is none of it worked. And then Shelley Yakis and I hit upon an idea. So we actually knew that the outro, we wanted sonically to be just completely as big as you could possibly ever make it. That people's stereos were about to explode. So we actually mixed the outro first. And that kind of gave us the finished goal to aim for. And then we stripped it all back right to the very start. So it starts out fairly simple, straightforward arrangement. But by the time you get to the end of it, it is just you cannot put any more in there. Everything is in there, including the kitchen sink. But we actually started, we did it backwards. We started at the end and then worked our way backwards. That's, that's mental. I love that. That's quite yeah. bold. That's very, that's very well, bold. Well, sitting I was... with, and I, I can't quite remember the number, but it was something like 57 different mixes and you hate all of them. So you have to do something different. Yeah, but, you you know, we talked about Benmont, but, you know, there, but when the Heartbreakers were doing Southern Accents, um, around that time, yeah. I guess reasonably the same time as you, you know, Petty pulverised his hand out of frustration because of all the bloody mixing, losing the, the soul of the record to a degree or the sound of it rather. <laughs> so it's, you know, uh, yeah, but that, that, but that—that's what you know. Making records is all about. Where, yeah, you go in and there are songs you thought felt fantastic live and when you're in the rehearsal room, and you go into a recording studio and it's just not there. And yeah. the songs that you thought were kind of okay, but suddenly they get a life of their own in the studio, and then yeah. you get a bit of an excitement going because it's got a vibe to it and there's something going on, and then you get to the mixing desk. And then the whole thing collapses again. It just turns into this big turd. And then you sit back and frustrated and walk in the kitchen yeah. at four o'clock in the morning thinking, how the hell am I going to fix this? And I do, I you little thief, it turned out to be, why don't we just mix the really big noisy bit first? And walk backwards from there. 
I love it. I absolutely love it. It does remind me a lot of Rebels uh, by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but like in a kind of, because of that, Dave, is that the Dave Stewart influence there, that kind of big the trumpets you said and what have you? Uh, yeah, no, that's, listen, David and I just went off on a complete mad tangent and had a fantastic time. Brilliant. We had a really, Brilliant. really good time making that record. Phenomenally good time. Who, who hasn't he worked with? It's insane. Uh, I don't know, because well, David's one of those guys Crazy. that, you know, he just kind of sees things out there and gets excited and his juices flow goes, oh, I'd love to do a bit of that for a while. And he'll do yeah. a bit of that and then he'll kind of think the attention span will go and he'll go, oh, let's go over there instead. And it yeah. makes Dave what he is. And, you know, let's face it, when you go and look at Dave Stewart's songwriting catalogue, well, you know what, mate? You've earned your stripes. You're entitled to do <laughs> it at this point. You really are. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when it was, it, so I guess it's sort of getting to near the time where we have to say goodbye, which sucks. I just feel like, I've, oh God, I just feel I could sit talk to you for about, I keep saying this for a long time, but... Oh, it's it's so hard because I don't I don't really like to prepare questions too much because I think it I don't know can you make it can make you end up sounding like a local BBC sure, Suffolk sure. DJ, you know it's just I like to try and go with the flow. I think we've covered stuff. I just feel like there's just you, you, the, the life you've led, you know, being so embedded in the music industry after you you know maybe hung up your boots so much with the, with the performing, like yeah. what was that what was that challenge like getting so embedded in in, in that. Uh, it was uh, actually quite exciting. I loved it. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I've always liked the idea of getting up in the morning and not quite knowing what I'm going to be doing that day. But the music industry has allowed me that opportunity to do that. And it was fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm, I do consider myself, I would like to think, incredibly grateful. Because in 1976, I was a kid growing up in Derry, driving a radio rentals van for a living. And music has given me this extraordinary life. Um, I effectively retired 10 years ago. Fuck that, who'd have ever thought that I'd be sitting there going, well, you know what, I'm 53, I think I'll retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, man. And then unfortunately, well, fortunately, maybe not, uh, by accident, wandered into this river thing and uh, decided that if I had an ability and a voice and a load of experience, and maybe because of all of the experience I've had and the things I've done in the past, I know I can get things done. And I decided yeah. to, at least for a while, devote my time and energies to possibly help raise a flag for those little community groups that we spoke about that have been trying to deal with this environment issue for 30 years. That's slightly more. Yeah, it's fantastic, man. Like, I I hope I have your energy, like, I hope I have your energy in two years, let alone... Yeah, listen, just 30. get out there and find stuff to do. It's exciting. I feel like, do you know, it, I feel like it is interesting because in terms of doing stuff now because of COVID and having a curtailed, life curtailed literally for like the best part of a year now, there are an <laughs> awful lot of people, I'm lucky to be able to be a podcast, um, and there are plenty of people that wouldn't yeah. want to do it or whatever, so I have an outlet for creativity, but I do feel for a lot of people that have had their creative um, channels completely switched off or, you know, stemmed quite a lot. Sure. Yeah. But anyway, look, thank you so much your time Fergal and just thank, 
Thanks for being so cool and getting back to me on Twitter. That was very cool of you. You know, not not everyone's that is that cool. You got it. It's very cool. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. See you another time. Take care.